Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikani. And we're your hosts. My name is Amukhelang Maledu. And whether I think if science can be decolonized, I think there is merit in decolonizing science. I just don't know how because I'm not a scientific expert. However, I do think that we can also reinvent it in its like westernized norms and there is merit also in the decolonization of it because when you think of scientists you think of predominantly white males which is also the conversation of decolonization a sense of the representation when you think science what do you see so there's a lot of merit in decolonizing it and reinventing it but i don't know how in the academic sense In this week's episode, we turn our attention to science and think about how indigenous and African knowledge systems can and should be integrated into scientific research. Our guest is Dr. Nosipiwe Nkwala, who is a lecturer at the university currently known as Rhodes in the Faculty of Pharmacy. She's based in the Environmental Health and Biotechnology Research Group, where she recently became head of research and supervises PhD, masters and honors students. Her research is on water, wastewater treatment and rainwater harvesting, sanitation and disaster management. She has over seven years research experience in biotechnology, sanitation and the field of water management and has published widely in peer-reviewed journals internationally and locally. She has a deep-rooted love for South Africa and is passionate about society, which motivates her to be part of the solutions to the economic, environmental and social problems facing us. Her desire to make a difference led her to be the founder and coordinator of a non-profit organization called Children of the Soil, which focuses on working with schools to address climate change issues in the Eastern Cape. Between 2014 and 2016, she served as a vice chairperson of Young Water Professionals in the Eastern Cape, and she's also an active member of the Activate Innovation Leadership Program, a national network of young leaders equipped to drive change for the public good across South Africa. She's also a fellow of the Africa Science Leadership Program, which is a new initiative that aims to grow mid-career African academics in the areas of thought leadership, team management, and research development. She's also a member of the Executive Committee for South African Young Academy of Science, which aims to contribute towards the development of scientific capacity in South Africa through mentoring and role modeling. So a very warm hello and welcome to Dr. Nosipiwe Nkwala, who is joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for making time for us. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's wonderful to have you here. So you are a 
lecturer at Rhodes University and you teach in the Faculty of Pharmacy and you do research in environmental health, biotechnology and water. And what motivated you as a, a scholar, as an academic to go into this particular line of research and scholarship? I'm, I'm biochemist by nature. By nature, I mean that my scholarship um, in biochemistry, I have like a master's in biochemistry, but after my master's, I wanted to do something that's going to, to be seen and people are going to benefit from it immediately, sanitation and public health, and I opted for that for my PhD. Of course, the climate change issues, they are facing our plants, our landscape, and our water resources, our economy. So those are the things that are the main drivers to be part of Canada. It sounds so fascinating, but you know, I'm rooted in the humanities, so I'm still trying to get my head around all of the complexity of some of the issues that you are working on. Could you give us, um, for those who, who are listening who are like me, not as acquainted with the science of what you're talking about, could you give us an example of, of the kinds of research projects that you may have worked on in the past that, that shows how you apply all of these big questions about the environment, about sanitation, about pharmaceuticals in the water, how you, you put that into practice in, in a research project? For example, I'll first talk about my PhD work where I was working on a wastewater treatment system that was developed by Dr. Bonga Zuma and I had to rework on the system and we piloted the system to Grahamstown communities, both urban and rural. We installed the wastewater treatment system where people can reuse their grey water. So basically the system is designed in a way that can treat your grey water and you can use the treated water for irrigation and for other house uh, purposes besides drinking. So that was a very interesting project for research group. And then the other project that's been involved in is the, it was a major breakthrough for the research group, is the water testing kit where the research group has, um, has developed the kits to check if your water is being contaminated. But the kit only focuses on hydrogen sulfide producing bacteria. So let's say if you have you have water outbreak, and then what's going to happen is that by the time the water comes back, the water may may be contaminated. So what you need to do is use the test kit and see if you can use the water. Or sometimes people use other alternative source of water, and then they need to check that before they can use. So that was a very exciting. At the moment, the very exciting is to look at the fresh water resources and look at what are the current pharmaceuticals that are being produced by are being produced from from our water bodies, from the humans to our water bodies. Or oh, just to say something about the H2S kit project. Uh, we work a lot with Namibia, and then some of the kids, we send them to Mozambique, which is really nice for the research, that sort of a contribution for water testing kids. Now we're looking at what kind of pharmaceuticals that are found there that our wastewater treatment plants are unable to treat, and they are of um, detrimental to the humans. So it's very, it's very exciting, and we also look at disaster management. 
Denden University be looking on um, on how the communities can be well equipped when we have disasters. I'm sure you're aware that we were once hit by disaster almost every year actually. In Port Alfred where we have water flowing all over then we need to empower our communities. Such important projects, and it's very clear that there's a deep kind of sense of social relevance in all of the, the research that you and your colleagues are doing. And it's also very clear that there's a strong centering of people, of human beings, of citizens in the research that you're doing. You know, as a scientist yourself, what argument would you make for the role that scientific research should play in a society like ours in South Africa? How, how can we ensure that, that scientific research is relevant to the interests and the needs of people? Apply ethical issues in your research and imagine who are you doing this research for and how can you then communicate and make your research to be inclusive to the community and also since the communities are the beneficiaries of this research, therefore we need to consider them while we're doing the research. Of course, because I'm, I'm an African, I'm, I've been raised by the spirit of Ubuntu. So everything in each and every decision that you need to do, you need to think about, oh, my community, my people, what are my people going to get from this? What are the who are my beneficiaries? Who am I doing this research for? And why? So all those kind of things sort of come naturally every time when you are thinking about what can I which is I think that's that was the reason why actually I left the hardcore science, which is biochemistry. Science because I remember in my master I worked on uh, Alzheimer's Alzheimer's. So mm. isolating a certain enzyme from Alzheimer's from a, a cow brain. So I'll go to Apatow, collect this cow brain, make sure that I isolate and purify this enzyme. And that was gonna take forever for me to see that oh wow, I've done outbreak. Like this is a huge and outstanding research. But I wanted something that's going to make change now because people are, the communities are suffering now. Climate change is now. It's all about engaging with the community. Look at your beneficiaries. That's all. That's really inspiring, the, the ethic that you put forward of your research as, as being inspired by the values of Ubuntu. I think that's really something... Um, that can be really useful for others to think about. But you mentioned that in, in some of the more hardcore sciences, um, you felt that that was missing, that spirit of Ubuntu or that p possibility of, of how to apply the research in a very kind of human-centered way. I just wonder if, if you think there is a possibility for the, the so-called hardcore sciences like pure maths or pure biochemistry to integrate those values of Ubuntu also. If so, how, how might that work or what kind of opportunities might be there for researchers working in that area? Okay, what I can think about first is we need to build relationships, strategies. I'll make an example with this master's uh, that um, I, I did in biochemistry. So I'll go to an apatone just to collect the cow brain immediately when the cows uh, are done. He was loaded, collect the brain and that, that was it. It was already arranged. I had no connection of who is the owner of the cow. I had no connection with that. All I was interested in was that there is nanotechnology. Forget about the ground work. And, and also uh, going back to that abattoir and reporting that, oh, this is what I found. 
and this this is the reason why I came to your aperture. This is the reason I want this type of a, of a cow brain, right? So I think people would have been interested and they would have been fascinated why I'm collecting the cow brain every almost every month, but they don't know what am I doing with it. Mm-hmm. And once I'm done, how do I like how do they know that I found what I, I was looking for? I don't come back next year. So I think communication, relationship is very important and also social relations. They call it ISR perspective. So we need to integrate that and make sure that since people are part of it, I mean, science is not isolated. People mm. live in it. It's happening every day. But if we don't really communicate that, we will think that science is I like that, and I think that's a really, really important observation that we we live in science. Science is around us every day, and it it matters to all sorts of things that affect our daily lives. Cleanliness of our water, through to various um, diseases and lifestyle challenges that we face. And I think that's a really useful way of thinking about how science kind of matters in terms of everyday life. I think that's a really valuable contribution. So in the the past couple of years. Um, We've been living through a very, um, I think, productive and fertile and, and quite challenging time um, in, the, in higher education where there's been a lot of public debate and discussion, of course, all started by students, um, about the importance of decolonizing universities and decolonizing different aspects of, of education. And I wonder, from, from your perspective in the sciences, what does decolonization mean? And how would you define that process or that set of demands or needs? Decolonization, to me, it means that it's a process, it's a process of uh, representation. That's one thing I think about it. We want to see, we want to live that, right? We want to see our experience being visible in class as well. So what happens is that mostly we normally so disconnected. You come from rural areas and then when you get to university, your lived experience, they are not incorporated in what you see in the classroom. So decolonizing in higher education to me is that we must integrate what we, we leave outside the classroom and bring it inside. And also representation, our students, they come from different angles. So then how do we make sure that everyone in what we talk about, in what we teach, in what in what we practice is being represented? So I will talk about it in terms of, um, I mean, I'm a lecturer. And I like my department because we are teaching health practitioners, for example, teaching pharmacists that are going to go out there and become health practitioners, be it in social Google or in, in Eastern Cape, wherever. We don't know where they or are they going to, uh, to be placed. But what is important for us is that we make sure that they are well equipped and they are well prepared for those, for those places or for the community. So then it starts with what you teach in class and the way you, you assess. So... Even in terms of assessment, besides being visible in the slides, like for example, if we talk about if you talk about the outbreak of uh, of measles, we, I can on, I, I cannot talk about Ebola only because Ebola is 
is in Congo, is in Sierra Leone. But then what about the outbreak, malaria? So be current and bring these things into your classes. Those are the things that are important that you must talk about your experience. Oh, how are you going to respond now that we have an outbreak of measles? What do we do as a pharmacist? So that is what decolonization means to make sure that everyone has been taken care of in terms of presentation and we can deliver the message in a way that everyone is, is, is going to receive the message. I think that um, argument for inclusivity is really, really important and it's so reassuring to know that these discussions and debates are active also in the sciences between educators. Do you think there is a dominance of of so-called Western science or Western kind of structures of knowledge in South African and African education at the moment? I think the first thing is that we don't really need to produce our own textbook like what I normally see on social media that you need to produce African textbook. I mean, I don't think there is such thing as in science as an Africa science textbook. Knowledge is knowledge. Whether you are in Africa or you are in, 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 in you are in the Western region, it's the same knowledge. Knowledge can be produced whether in, in spite of, of your origin, in spite of where you are at that particular time. And make sure that what we learn in class, it's what people see. In Africa, for example, we have we are taught in a way that we we enforce family values, right? There's a certain thing that do not permit us to practice in a, in a Western way. I'll just say this thing of Ubuntu, it permits us to, to enforce family values. I'll make an example with Ebola. When there was an outbreak of Ebola and um, Sierra Leone, so why did we have such a huge number of people die? For example, you can look at the culture and how we do things, right? Talk about the, the cultural values, right? So you cannot, for example, say that, oh, then um, we're going to isolate the patient. I mean, how do people are going to be isolated from their family? Would I rather send my mother away, die somewhere far away from home, rather than to make sure that I treat them young? So culturally, it does not allow me to release my mother to go into a certain place where I know she's going to die. Rather have my mother die, die with dignity, in case that I'm able to take care of it, you see? So now, there is a, possi uh, a possible integration that can happen there, is that how can we work together, bring the, bringing the Western knowledge and enforcing African values at the same time? So that is where the trick is. That's where we look at the legal frameworks that we can apply. Look at the things that we can, we can, we can, we can do. We can practice to work together as academic communities. So that is where the trick is. I honestly do not see anything wrong in both ways. I mean, there are things that um, that the Western um, medicine have have not achieved in number of years, but you will see that traditional medicines have achieved a lot of things as well, that they can bring together their knowledge and then that can take us somewhere. So that is what I think. So for you, one, one way in which decolonization can take shape is through actually the integration of traditional 
forms of knowledge with so-called Western forms of knowledge? Yeah, I think that that is where where the key is at the moment. Mm. If we can unlock that, then we are we are able to go forward, integrate those two. Then we we can say minus one profit. <laughs> You, you touched on an example about uh, Western medicine and uh, traditional medicine. And I was hoping you could say a bit more about those two and specifically about the kinds of contributions traditional medicine could make to solving various health or social issues. So, for example, if let's say here in South Africa in the Eastern Cape, we have someone who is schizophrenic. And then um, if we take this person to a traditional healer, for example, this person, the traditional healer will tell you that this person has a calling. Then what's going to happen next? Because if someone has a calling and I'm taking them to the doctor and the doctor gives them a medication to reduce their schizophrenia, right? So that... Uh, when this person goes back home, it's not going to change the fact that at home they will tell the person that you have a calling. And then the person will continue taking the medication. That again, there are two things that are coming out from that. Is that traditional, there is a calling, which means that there is a faith that is involved. So then how then one work in, in, in that situation? Because... If you have a calling, then you might end up dying from because your ancestors want you to accept the calling. You are sleeping there in the ward, being treated for schizophrenia. So then how do we bridge this truth and make sure that because we are concerned about the health and the well-being of the patient, at the same time we want this person to leave. What we need to look at is that, okay, you have schizophrenia. Let's look at the legal framework. Because now the issue is that what makes the Western medicine to be dominating is the legal framework, pushing behind it. Is that the CDC, the Centers of Center of Disease Control, they also have their rules, right? They enforce certain mandates through government. So going back to the schizophrenia example that I am using, how do we then legitimize the fact that this person has a calling between the two uh, two doctors? The Western said that um, you're schizophrenic, and the traditional said that you have a calling. But both of them might be correct, hmm. right? So that now the terminology and the language that's being used, it might be problematic because people might not understand what you mean. You can treat both of these at the same time. If you're schizophrenic, take your medication. If you would like to pursue and see further if you really have a calling or not, it's okay. Once you take your, medis- your medication, go to the initiation school and let's see if really there is a calling or the schizophrenic uh, medication is helping you. Because at the end of the day, what we're interested in is the, well, the, the wellness of this individual. I think that those are the things that we need to look at. So we're not going to change the faith of the community because what happens is that people will take this medication. When they get home, they throw them away because mm. they really do not understand that 
they can work together. Now they are not legalized. Another example is that in antibiotics and anti-inflammatories that we use, you'll find out that there are certain herbs that are growing in, in our houses and you've been raised taking these, these anti-inflammatories. But you did not know that actually I'm taking this medication because it's an anti-inflammatory. It's again a technology that people are not aware of. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is strong. But then now, another problem will be the quantity and the quality of this medication. So then we need to look at how do we control because there are certain bodies that are, are involved in legalizing this Western medicine. Even in Africa, we can have that. We can have these bodies, these uh, certain structures to say that, okay, if you take five mils of this anti-inflammatory, it's going to be dangerous for you. Not to take them is not a solution because if you're telling people, no, don't use this, it's not good for you. Then it's another issue because people are going to 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 are going to leave it or maybe abandon it, and we end up relying on Western medicine. Mm-hmm. Then it's going to be hard for Western medicine to make sure that it takes care of everyone because our we cannot run away from the fact that our population is huge and everyone needs these things. Mm-hmm. And how can these two institutions work together and put put a system, especially for South Africa? I've been hearing that. There are these talks which uh, now there, there is a traditional healer meeting, meeting with Department of Health. But I feel like they haven't been out there and, um, in, in terms of legislation. This conversation, they are, they are, they are delaying. You know, we need to we need to make sure that they are represented in a way that it's going to it's going to be fast. We need to respond. A simple example is uh, Zenata in, in Zimbabwe. So in Zimbabwe, they have passed that legislation. Traditional medicine, they work together with the Western medicine through Zenata. I really like this vision that you've outlined about traditional systems of healthcare and healing working together with Western systems, that they don't have to cancel each other out, but in fact that they could both contribute to the ultimate goal, which is happy and healthy human beings. And I think the examples you, you brought up were really, really enlightening also. One question that comes up for me from the conversation we're having now is, has there been enough research into traditional forms of healing and medicine in terms of, you know, the actual chemical or biochemical uh, properties of various you know, materials that are used for healing? Is, is that a space that we need more research into so that we can fully understand the potential and the limitations of various um, substances and you know plants and herbs etc that are used for healthcare. I don't think they've been intensive research. I think that they haven't been up to standard. I'll particularly talk about South Africa. Is that um, I think we're not taking it serious, and the thing of Western dominion has taken over a lot, especially in terms of research because. We were restricted by these rules, laws, legislation that you need to pass through in order to do this research. And I think that those are a hindering cause now in terms of traditional medicine. We're not going to stop people and people are going to continue suffer. We're not going to stop people from taking these medications, right? While we are busy waiting for you 
legislation. Not like even for you to to do research as a researcher, you need to get ethical clearance, and you may even fail. They may not even pass your research. So those sometimes are disadvantage as in why we are where we are at the moment. I think we really we really need to do something. I'll make an example with with diabetes in in the country is suffering. And what is happening now, I will talk about my experience in rural areas of Eastern Cape, in Mount Fair and Umzenkubu. Every time when I go home, I'll go to the pharmacy. I know that my granny will send me to go and get something. So when you go to the pharmacy, there is a long queue. When you look at the medication, always interest what kind of medication are we selling at this particular time? It's just looking at the consumers because we need to be aware of about our economy. Mm. What is it that we're spending more money on? And you find out that people are buying um, medication for diabetes. And then you ask yourself, but okay. And then when you go outside, there's a long queue. People are waiting for a herbalist to get medication. And actually, they will just drop their medication. And like, hey, you need to go buy that one. Why? You see, when I use this one, I get better. That's the only thing people are interested in, in getting better and being healed. And you ask yourself that if that traditional healer is the one that people trust more, at the same time, what are we waiting for? Mm. At the same time, people are, are in the pharmacies buying the same med- the similar med- medication. And then when you look at the structure of this medication, you realize that if we can really work together, we can minimize. And you go to another town, say a neighborhood, you'll find people are waiting at 5 a.m. in the morning, waiting for this uh, traditional traditional human to come and sell them this prostitution home. And they feel better. Imagine now a huge research institute take on those um, traditional healing, take them in, find out what is in that meditation, what is it that we can look at, because we're not going to stop them. That is the main issue. We can say that people do not afford at the same time. And this pharmacy, they can be far away, and you need to get better right now. When you feel pain, you just want to take anything that's going to take the pain away. I think we're not doing enough and also the rules and the regulations, they are just too much. Mm. It's, it's the same thing. I always laugh when I talk to my friends by accounting or commerce and they talk about economy, how this BE and all the rules in terms of entrepreneurship. We'll look at Nigeria and we'll say, look at how Nigeria is. Everyone is an entrepreneur, and I'll be telling them that look at where we should be right now. If then we are able to make this kind of medication, we should be selling it. And all these countries, they should be coming to South Africa to get this medication. Now we have this hindrance, these regulations. That means we're not including the experience, the lived experience. So you'd like to see much more investment in research that looks at the properties of the various traditional medicines and substances that are being popularly preferred by many people who are suffering from conditions. And I think that's a very strong case you've made that that kind of research needs to happen. So this has been such an interesting conversation. I feel like we've gone on such a journey thinking about research into water and the role of water in communities. And we've kind of ended up thinking about 
different um, paradigms of thinking about research into medication and healthcare. Is there anything else that you would want to kind of speak to or talk about in relation to, to the conversation we've had or anything else that comes up for you in thinking about how science and healthcare can be and should be decolonized? It seems like we, we're revolving around the same thing. Like, I mean, if we look at the religion, we have different faiths. We cannot change people's faiths if we have that conversation. That at the same time, while you're praying, while you're fasting, while you're believing, then take your medication, take your HIV uh, medication. In terms of language, you may find out that this antibiotic or this anti-inflammatories that we're talking about, it's something that someone has found out about it or they already know. Like, for example, in class, what I've realized is that when I talk about this medication, like, for example, sweet potato, some people know it in a different, like, they use different words for it. So, and then in terms of culture, culture really, we're not going to take it, uh, take away uh, culture. We're not going to erase it by one day. And I don't think it's anyone, it's in anyone intention to erase culture but we need to look at it like for example women when we talk about women in STI African women it has taken us some time and we're not there yet when we talk about STIs we, we're not there yet we need to acknowledge that and see then how then can we move forward how then if I see that I have a discharge if I see that I have some pimples or I'm noticing something different in my vagina, how do I respond? We cannot run away from the fact that culturally it affects us and how do we acknowledge our culture and make sure that knowledge is out there to build a better, how then do we respond? And then in, in terms of science, I will just sum it up and talk about this integration is important. And this legislation, they need to be visible and be out there. So they, that's another thing that I feel that it's underneath there. It's there, and it, but people know that it's there. You have to go and dig and find out. Or you have to make a mistake. And then the next thing, you're being told that, oh, this is how you, you should have done it. You know? How then can we use our research expertise to make sure that this information is out there. People are allowed to have this information. It is accessible. Access is another thing that we need to think about when we are rethinking about this decolonization. Access is very important. Communication, integration. I absolutely agree. I think you've made some really strong arguments and really helped me as a kind of simple humanities person to understand a lot more about some of the complexities and challenges that exist in scientific research and in thinking about how scientific research matters to communities and thinking about all of the different issues involving culture and different belief systems and different kind of value systems that need to be taken into account. Um, so I'm very grateful to you for your time and for all your wisdom. My name is Namsang Novo from UJ. I'm studying marketing and everything must be decolonized. Like, I feel as though I'd rather know more about, like, my black heritage in terms of science than, like, European stuff. Like, it has nothing to do with me. I want to hear about African science or African things that involve science. So it must all be decolonized, actually. 
The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. Jagger Melko created our jingles. <laughs>